Everybody is murderous in their attentions towards everybody else. They can't hold them back! Submit yourself to one all-powerful absolute sovereign. Thomas Hobbes, the great 17th century natural philosopher, called this... Leviathan! I like shapeshifters, only a lot more into evil folk. And nothing can kill them. Hey, so maybe I'm not real. Hello the internet and welcome to the Lands of Leviathan podcast. A member of the Agora Podcast Network. Where we discuss political science and popular culture. As always hosted by Peter Sleeman and Brock Rodman. Today we're going to be discussing the crazy election that just happened in the United States. um, And the victory of Donald Trump to become Um, president-elect. We thought that we would have to do this. Uh, I'm glad that we left it until the decision was decided because, as it turns out, I was wrong about everything that happened in this election. All of my predictions were wrong. I was just wrong. Um, we, were, we, were, we were wrong about the Scottish referendum. Yeah. We were wrong about Brexit. We were wrong about Trump. So maybe I should... <laughs> I don't think people should listen to yeah. us anymore. <laughs> I think this is the end of the show. Yeah. It only makes me happy that all the other political pundits were also wrong. So at least we're in you know, good company. I'm going to sue the University of Pretoria and get my political science degree money back, bastards. Yeah. <laughs> I'd rather be inconsistent yeah, than be yeah. right. <laughs> um, but before we get into that, which is going to be very interesting, let's deal with the podcaster of the month for the Agora Podcast Network, and that is Elias Belhadad <laughs> and the History of Islam podcast, which um, is what it sounds like. It's, he goes through the history of Islam and its effects on the world and its effect on our culture and today's political society as well as its hitch- history. So something that is very important for people to understand today, given the nature of the relationship between the West and um, and and the Middle East, uh, but also if you guys want, which is often a con- which often is a contorted yeah. one, and often the, that relationship can lead to many misunderstandings about Islam. So it'd be good to get a clearer and more accurate picture from a historical perspective on what the what the religion is about and its teachings and yeah. where it comes and from. and I think if you guys want a political perspective on it, go back and listen to our episode on the clash of civilizations where we discuss it from a very political perspective. Um, but let's get into it, bro. Um, so what happened? Well, Why? Because we haven't planned this yeah. episode at all. We, we, when, when Trump won, we knew we were going to record something yeah. about it. Why? What? Why would we do... Why would it be so automatic for us and... Uh, as opposed well, to other I issues. Think it's uh, we're in new territory now, as we were with Brexit to a certain extent. But I think it's um, it's a little bit more. There's a, there's a whole bunch of firsts that have happened now in the United States. So, firstly, first and foremost, it's the first time that a non-political person has become American president, probably since George Washington, um, because he couldn't be political because America didn't have political stuff before him. Um, but yeah, I mean, some people talk about Reagan. So explain, explain to us what that means. What, what is it? Non. Well, he's the president? first. He's the first president to have not held any political office. So he was never a mayor. He was never a governor. He was never an alderman. He was nothing. He wasn't a council member. He's just a businessman. Um, sometimes people compare him to Reagan, but forgetting that Ronald Reagan was the governor of California prior to his run for the president, uh, the presidential election. So that's... And before that, obviously, Ronald Reagan was a professional full-time... Yeah, he was an actor. I mean, but Ronald Reagan was always active politically, even when he was an actor. You know, he was very involved with the, uh, you know, fighting against communism in the United States. He was also very involved with the different guilds in Los Angeles. You know, he was secretary of the society. So he was... Even though he, you know, in the beginning of his time, he wasn't necessarily part of the American federal or state political machine. He was always kind of, you know, in in a political space, I, I think you could say. Whereas Donald Trump has not been. He's a businessman, a bad one. Um, but, you know, he's a businessman. Why do you say oh, that? Well, Donald, like, just, I mean, all this stuff is, is open on the internet. So, uh, you know, if we started to go into... And the internet never lies. If we started lies. to go into everything that Donald Trump has done and said this podcast would last forever so but just to give you some background no well let's just let's give let's give some background about yeah, what so he's done donald trump comes from a family of businessmen his father was a real estate uh i, would, I don't say i wouldn't say mogul but he was a successful real estate agent uh you know real estate businessman who gave donald trump a million dollars 
um, to start his own business, which is, you know, nice. That's, that's a good thing to, you know. Uh, Donald Trump took that million dollars and, you know, in his own words, turned it into the multi-billion dollar empire he has today, except for the fact that it's not a multi-billion dollar empire. So the first thing that's interesting is just to compare, you know, Donald Trump says, you, you, you know, you can never, he, he says a whole bunch of stuff, but, you know, let's just say he's worth $3.1 billion or $2.4 billion, whatever he happens to say at the time. If Donald Trump had taken that million dollars and invested it in the stock exchange, he would be worth more now than uh, than he is worth. Um, so he would have made more money just, you know, putting money in the stock exchange than he would have actually, you know, taking out business interests, which is not a good sign. You obviously want oh, wow. your... So he did something yeah, you wrong. you want your business to perform better than just the, the average of the stock market at the time. I mean, that's how you turn a profit. Of course, you know, you can never know how much Donald Trump is worth because he does not declare his tax returns. Um, he hasn't paid federal taxes for many years, um, which was revealed prior to this election. And, you know, so we're never sure how much he's actually worth. Uh, so the, the, the $2.4 billion... Could be it's actually... There's also something else worth noting in there is that before he made, he didn't just take a little bit of money or, you know, a relatively small amount like a million dollars and just turn it into billions. It wasn't that straight shot. He um, got into some pretty uh, nasty business deals that actually left him penniless. He lost so much money and didn't just come back down to zero. He ended up in million dollars in millions of dollars worth of debt. He yeah. lost many people's money. Yeah. And uh, and people say that the way that he got out of that, well, the way he got himself into that, and the way he got himself out of it, and continued to to make as much money as he does, is not because he's a very astute businessman, but because he's very good at manipulating yeah. people. Yeah. And uh, but that's not just you know um, a unique feature to to Donald Trump. I've heard many people say that there's a certain cap in the free market economy where you can make an X amount of money by being an honest business broker. Once you break that cap and start earning above that and you know it's relative to each nation's economy but there's there is a level at which if you if you want to start making that kind of money you have to start breaking people's backs you have to start being dishonest and pretty much snying your business partners so let's just say you know he hasn't made many hmm. friends along the and way. that's i think that's what we're going to be getting into in this podcast is donald trump is a product of the american capitalist system he's a product of He's a product of, he's the worst possible product of the American political system as it is now. Um, he's not an exception. He is what the, you know, years and years of the political process has eventually turned out. Um, and I think that that's what, you know, what, what I'll be discussing later on is, is how, how that happened. You know, how did Donald Trump get elected in the first place? Which is crazy. And I was trying to think the other day of, um, of some kind of pop culture reference to to make this understood, and I I thought an interesting one would be to look at the Star Wars, uh, you know, with Emperor Palpatine and how how uh, you know Emperor Palpatine became Emperor Palpatine from Chancellor. You overtook the Chancellor Supreme Chancellor. Of the oh Lord. yeah, that's right. He overtook Supreme Chancellor Lauren. Um, he was Darth Sidious, became Chancellor Palpatine, and it, but. Now, let's imagine, just change that situation a little bit and imagine that instead of him creating the separatist movements, he just tapped into a bunch of states, or planets in this case, that were on the fringe of the Galactic um, Republic who weren't that happy with the way that the Galactic Republic was getting run but were getting ignored by the Galactic Senate. And he used them to gain power in the in the Senate and eventually... You know, eventually took, take that super far and declared it a fucking empire, which I, I don't think Trump is going to do. But it's an interesting analogy that, you know, that, that, that I think is what has happened is that there are a large percentage of American voters who are very unhappy with the way the system is and were given no option as to who to vote for because at, at the end of the day, they did not want to have somebody who was, uh, you know, a party insider. So, they voted for Donald Trump because he was the only option to vote for in America at the time. Oh, America. But, and how much of his um, non-political background do you think had, had to do with it? I think it had a huge amount to do with it. I think it had an absolutely massive amount to do with it. And uh, I suppose now, like, we can just jump into the, the – I mean, this is the way I read it. And, you know, you can agree or disagree. I don't know. 
I've been listening to a whole bunch well, of I don't podcasts. Know. I, just, I do want to agree with, with something that I do want to build on that um, it's not necessarily that all Trump supporters, you know, and the majority of the population evidently now say that he's a, he would be a better president, but more that they were so upset with the system that they thought that someone like Hillary Clinton who built their career within that system is necessarily going to be able to or willing to mm. change it. So it's not just that they, you know, yeah. they prefer no, Donald I, I, Trump, it's that they didn't trust Hillary Clinton to be the president that they needed. Exactly. Um, and I think that to in order to explain it, like you kind of have to go back to how the American economy was developed in the first place. And unlike Europe, you know, so the European economies have been developing over time, you know, for hundreds and hundreds of years. There is a divide in Europe between rural and urban. So obviously you've got cities like Paris and London, but there are villages throughout those countries that have managed to sustain themselves on other industries, um, such as tourism, such as, you know, cottage industries where they produce very specific things. Um, they, they've managed to reach some kind of equilibrium with the urbanization that's occurred in the cities. In America, however, some of the smaller towns, in fact, a lot of the smaller towns are what are called factory towns or single industry towns. So the whole town is geared around one specific production. So you'll have a steel mill or you'll have a, you know, a coal mine or you'll have, you know, a, just one industry in the center of town. Now, if that industry shuts down, if that factory shuts down or the whole town just dies and you know, this is where, you know, as you see it a lot in movies and in TV shows where, you know, the, the, whatever TV show you're watching, like it happens in Supernatural a lot. They'll run through a town that's like decrepit and falling apart. And it's because, you know, the steel mill shut down because they couldn't compete with overseas prices. Um, and then often what happens as well is a Walmart might come into town and completely, you know, the, the local, local industries will not be able to compete. And you end up having a town that's just working for Walmart, um, which creates other problems. But, in 2008, with the financial crisis, a lot of these small towns got hit super hard because the industries couldn't hack it. So there were a lot of factory closes all across America, and these towns just started to die. So if you start, if you look at stats now um, of those rural towns, suicide rates are up, unemployment rates are up, um, the uh, you know addiction, drug addiction is up. Uh, you know, violent crimes are up all across these like little rural areas. At the same time, however, if you look at the liberal media in America, and this is starting to sound conspiratorial, but it's that, but the media in America is largely liberal, except for possibly Fox, but they're so fucking crazy that they don't paint, paint the right picture either. Even Fox is only dealing with stuff that happens in the cities. And when you aggregate the stats of the cities across the entirety of America, so even including all the stuff that's going on in the rural areas, you find that crime rates are down and uh, you know drug addiction is down, suicide right, rates are down, and that's what the, me the liberal media reports on. And that's not necessarily untrue, but it's because obviously the cities have such a huge weight on you know the, the production of statistics. So then yeah. on the other side, you look at popular culture and you see, I mean, I can't think of a movie that I've ever seen that paints rural America in a good light. You know, it's always fucking crazy, yeah. serial killers, uh, you know, hillbillies fucking their sister and, you know, or it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, you know, cannibal murderers or, you know, it's always stuff like that. It's always, and it's, it's stupid people doing stupid stuff. And that, that's been going on since fucking, you know, horror movies started in the 70s and 80s. And then add on yeah. to that, in the, the when uh, the Obama administration started the restructuring of the economy in order to pull the American economy out of the 2008 slump, which he did. Obama managed to pull the American economy in general out, but all of that money went to the cities. So New York, L.A., Chicago, Washington, Seattle, those cities have all kind of emerged from the 2008 credit crisis and or credit crunch and have, they're, they're fine, they're doing all right now. And the American economy in general is doing, is doing better than it was last year. But the people in the rural areas have not seen any improvement since that 2008 collapse. So 
you know, it's so easy. And you hear the liberal media saying so much, like, oh, these people are just dumb. Um, you know, they're a bunch of dumb, sexist, homophobic, racist, deplorables. Conservatives. Yeah, conservatives. Uh, you know, Christian, Christian, Christian far-right yeah. crazies. And they're not being represented at all. They're, they're seeing themselves literally dying from suicide and drug addiction. Their towns are falling apart. And the picture they're getting from Washington, D.C. and the media is, nope, everything's actually fine. We're doing, we're doing all right. So now put yourself, yeah. and I don't agree. I mean, electing Donald Trump was not a good idea because he's, he's not going to fix these issues. But I can certainly no. see how but, you can say, you know, looking... Those yeah, issues exist. You're looking at the, at the presidential candidates and Hillary on one side, who is basically the embodiment of the political system. I mean, she's been a senator for most of her life. Yeah. She was married. She's married to a former president. She was secretary of state for many, many years. Um, of course, you know, you're going to, your anger is going to be directed at her. And then your other option is Donald Trump, who is not a political insider. He's a political outsider. Like, that's what he had going for him. And no matter what scandals, this is why I think the scandals that hit him didn't do much damage. Because, you know, as much as they were scandalous, the fact still remained that at the end of the day, he's a political outsider. And that's what mattered. As long as he retained that, he was he was good to go. Yeah. And it's so easy. Like, we're doing, I'm doing the thing that political scientists love to do, which is sit back after the fact. Simplify. And say like, oh, of course this was going to happen. Because I did not, even with all this knowledge in my head, I still didn't predict it. But I think that that's because I was, you know, I was hoping. I w my, my analysis was hampered by hope that Trump wouldn't win, <laughs> which is not a good scientific you know, approach to take. But uh, That befuddlement of political <laughs> hope. <laughs> Never exactly. <been. laughs> um, but that's, I mean, that's, I think that that's really the, I, I believe that's the underlying reason why Trump one and if america if the american system wants to get back up on its feet it has to look after these people otherwise people like trump are just going to keep getting voted in well it sounds um very like a very very similar story to our brexit episode where we argued that the the people who were afraid of britain losing power and losing autonomy and the british people feeling like they have no influence over the way that their country is governed or how it uh, relates to the rest of Europe and the world. It's that fear and that uh, that has been allowed to make policy changes inadvertently by making, you know, by, by, by acting in such a drastic measure, in such a drastic vote. Um, and it's absolutely right to not do the media thing and just to label and paint these people as ignorant, stupid, backwater uneducated and ultimately giving the rest of the country all the right reasons to not yeah. listen to them and that would be the wrong response that would be an immature response and yeah sure it might be sexy to sell those stories because it will, might vindicate your own personal elitism um, or vindicate your own personal beliefs about how the country should be run or who should be running it but that doesn't help engender a healthy sense of governance and if democracy needs to be the way then it certainly doesn't help grow your and mature your type mm. of democracy so these types of issues need to be engaged with you understand why where these people come from because clearly people underestimated the scale to which these problems were, mm. were existing that's not to say that every problem exists that's not to say that we absolutely should be building or not we because we're not american but that people in the united states should be supporting a wall in the you know the southern border between the United States mm -hmm. and Mexico, but that's to say the people who think there should be a wall should not be sidelined in a, in a federal vote or in a presidential uh, electoral mm -hmm. campaign. It's it's to say that by when somebody says let's build a wall, don't just say oh that's stupid. Let's talk about mm -hmm. the next thing. And I think I, that's such a that's such a good point because it's something that I've been thinking about a lot over the last you know over the last week or you know last two weeks and. Um, and I, oh, I like just for the listeners, I like I myself am a very, very strong liberal. Um, you know, I consider myself a liberal. I'm a very strong feminist. I am, you know, so I, in terms of like, well, you're such a good person. In terms of my political position, I would. You're saying all the right things uh, to get sponsorship. In fact, they might even pay for your PhD. Yes, if please. You care I need cash, guys. 
He'll sell his political totally allegiance will. for funding. In fact, Donald Trump, if you're going to give me some cash, like... <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, I, I mean, I I agree. I agree with most of Hillary's policies. Um, I you know, I, I so but and and Brock Brock is obviously Brock is a conservative, and um, we have a lot of interesting discussions about that. But there is, and we'll be discussing ideology, which was was supposed to be our episode today, but uh, we'll be doing that next week. So that, look forward to that because it'll give us some more context for this discussion as well. But the liberal tradition and that you know now i'm talking about the liberal tradition as a as a political movement rather than as the academic field has shot itself in the foot over i would say the last 20 years because twice in both feet yeah with a shotgun. because I, I think what you said is exactly right the liberals you know liberals are very good at shutting down conversations which is not to say that conservatives absolutely the, they're the best yeah, i mean conservatives have been doing this for centuries as well um yeah. But and I I feel like sometimes liberals take a very strong relish in shutting down conservative discussions because they feel like they're getting their own back. But there's a problem with that, yeah. and the and it creates the type of people who ended up voting for Donald Trump. So, for instance, I think a good example of this is the feminist um, arguments. So, if a if a guy, you know, let's uh, you know, a single white heterosexual cisgendered male you know wants to have a discussion about feminist issues which as a human being is absolutely your right to do so you should be able to openly discuss things in a calm you know measured approach so if you want to broach the topic and like this is a topic that brock and i discussed the other day about uh for, for instance access to bathrooms in you know for transgendered people and you want to have that discussion and you just want to bring up the issue of, look, I'm not picking one side or the other. I'm raising the concern that I have in my head of, is this going to open the door for possible sexual assaults in those bathrooms? I, I'm not saying it is. I'm asking the question. And then the oftentimes the liberal person that you're in my straw man set up, <laughs> the liberal person... <laughs> will shut you down and be like, "Up, oh, no, you're, ra- you're 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 sexist and you're homophobic for even considering it." No, you are absolutely not. You have raised a concern that you have in your head, and the the correct response to that uh, to that line is to say, "Okay, let's let's have a look at the data. Let's see uh, how many bathroom assaults are committed in general. Um, let's look at places where you have unisex bathrooms and see if assaults go up and." At this point, I'm happy to say that the data shows that no, there are, there is no increase in bathroom assaults when uh, bathrooms are made unisex or transgender friendly. Now, if the person you're talking to is rationally minded, you're like, cool, okay, that's done. Let's go on to the next issue. We've had the discussion. We've come to a conclusion. But when you say to that person, I'm not talking to you because you're a fucking homophobe, get the fuck out of here, what that person does is like, Okay, so now that I can't have a discussion with this person anymore, who is a feminist, I'm going to go find people who I can have a discussion with. And they get, and in today's world, it's so super easy to do that. They get online and they go onto Reddit and they might come across the men's rights activists groups who are men who think like them. And now they're in a position where they're having a discussion with people who don't shout at them for just raising a concern. And suddenly you have a, a, a social movement that only considers their own point of view because they're they're rejected from the other conversations, and you know then you then you have then you have issues of people becoming a little bit too like crazy and extremist in their views because they're cut out from other conversations. And I think that that's what liberals have done a lot to a lot of issues. Yeah, it's um, it's <clears throat> it's an unfortunate growing pain of liberalism, um, and again, not as a political yeah. movement, but. Uh, sorry, as a political movement, not as the ideology, um, because it was it was the right ideology to get mm. it right. It was I was you know it's exciting to to watch liberalism achieve a status of be of adopting that rational measured approach to, of integration and of cultural maturity, um, and to take responsibility for the good and the bad of that transculturalism that we see piggybacking on globalization, where we can say. 
um, we can blame it for westernizing many cultures, but we can also support it in that it it, it fosters good, healthy deliberation. Yeah. Um, so when we encounter issues like transgenderism and we try to discuss things like uh, homophobia or even terrorism to some extent, or let's, let's say Islamophobia, um, we, we trust a liberal approach to say, right, we're not holding as liberals we don't hold any we don't hold any grudges there's no discrimination allowed here we foster you know a balanced measured politically correct debating mm. forum let's share issues let's talk about um you know our possible mm. solutions and see if we can because it doesn't have to be but if it's possible to arrive at some sort of uh, general consensus mm. and, and from there we can find um we can build some sort of uh, nitpicking uh, detailed corrective measure from which we can grow and over the next 10 years we could perhaps solve an issue or at least come closer yeah. to that and yet instead of what and we can see that happening in some areas we can see that i think that that, that sort of a liberal mindset has helped okay it didn't take 10 years it maybe took about 20 or 25 years even longer to to start getting it right in the environmental forums where we where we force uh big power conservative mindsets to overcome their prejudices and admit to the data that we see in front of us and actually do something about the the future of the world. Um, and that's a positive, although it took many growing pains and we're still by no means close to it, but we're starting to, instead of tackling the big issues, we're now tackling the finer issues of how to get it right. But we're seeing a positive trend up uh, in, the, in, the global, in the fight against global climate change. If we apply... Now, liberalism cannot be said to be getting that right in with issues such as uh, transgender debates. Um, it's and, and like you said, the unfortunate outcome of that, because I don't want to rehash what you've said, I think you said, summarized it well, but the unfortunate outcome is, like you said, um, a sort of amassing of, um, can we say, galvanized, hardcore, uh, reactionary uh, arguments that are not being well tested, that are not being founded against... Um, antithesis or good counterfactual arguments, but are rather being hardened into um, undisturbed, unquestionable, discriminatory viewpoints that are obviously also making conservatives out to be the type of stereotypical um, people that the media accuses them of being. So there is unfortunately some truth to people who who are you know intensely homophobic, closed-minded. Maybe you know even Islamophobes or uh, or anti-immigrants and xenophobes, um, and all of those things get condensed because there's been no healthy platform that or invitation to discuss issues around which you know we could have perhaps found a different solution to treating immigrants as opposed to building a wall. Exactly, and also if somebody um, is homophobic, which you know if. There's a there's a writer on on crack.com, which is a you know a website that I read a lot, and they they also have a very good podcast. Um, his name is David Wong, and and he grew up in one of these small town Americas, and and you know one of these small American towns, and he was talking about his, uh, you, you know his his time growing up, and as when he grew up in this tiny little small town in the middle of fucking but you know fucking nowhere, um. His idea of homosexuality was just non-existent because he didn't have any, or well, he didn't know. I mean, there might have been one guy who was too scared to come out, but he didn't know any homosexuals in his town. So all his perception of them, obviously, I don't know, probably came from movies. And obviously, you know, there were movies on one side, which, uh, you know, paints a very specific picture of the homosexual man or homosexual woman. And because he was, you know, in the in a Christian, uh, Protestant situation in a small town America, uh, obviously that has a huge effect on the on the view of, of homosexuality. And um, it's it's hardly surprising that somebody like that would develop a certain amount of homophobia, or even if it's not homophobia, maybe just like some weariness of homosexuals. Stereotype. Yeah, just be like, I'm not sure how I feel about this, you know. So I'm, you know, I don't know what to do. Now that, now David Wong's, you know, his experience was that he went to LA and he went to a whole bunch of cities and he eventually encountered gay people and was like, oh, okay, well, they're just people, 
You know, they they ended up, of, of course, they're just people. And in retrospect, you know, of course, that makes sense. But when you don't know anything else, it's very easy to not to, to not have that perception. Now, a, a, a lot, and this is not all, all liberals, obviously. We're painting a very broad brush here. And this is obviously also an American liberal tradition, but that's the one that dominates the media. Um, and, but, you know, if, if a kid comes out of small town America and says, I'm not sure how I feel about homosexuality, that kid is probably going to get shouted at a lot by any liberal people around them. Um, rather than saying yeah. like, oh, okay, well, let's explain it to you. Let's have a discussion and uh, let's bring you into the circle and give you all the information and then you can make your decision. Which is what fucking... And you, exactly. And then put, put a lot of emphasis on that closing phrase. You can make your own yeah, decision. Yeah, obviously. Because, and, you know, yeah, I, I agree. You should be able to make your own decisions. And 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 if and if that person were to sadly arrive at the conclusion that they're not okay with with people who you know are homosexual then that decision must be held as their own and then they can accept the consequences of having that viewpoint um and they understand that discrimination is illegal and if they were to act on that viewpoint and treat people with with um homosexual tendencies to, as a as lesser human beings with less uh, mm -hmm. value in the world then that's then they can you know they can fully accept the consequent the criminal consequences Absolutely. of that and i think that you know to bring it back to to the trump election that you know they keep calling these people who who, who voted for trump the silent majority and i think the answer is to yeah. you know the question is why are these people silent and i i who yeah, silenced that's them the thing is i truly think they're silent a because nobody listens to them and b because they have been silenced um and I don't yeah. agree with a lot of their perceptions, but in order to, you don't shame somebody into changing their perceptions. You include them in the, the discussion yeah. until their perception. And it takes time, of course. It takes time. I mean, back in the day when America was but, discussing, but, you know, the abolition of the slave trade or, or and the abolition of slavery, that had to have a discussion. So you had fucking people standing up in Congress and the, the states, you know, systems arguing for slavery that was as much as those guys are assholes that it was necessary to have the argument so that it could push the agenda forward if you don't have the argument you don't go anywhere you, you know what i mean yep yeah i know what you mean but we must also be um we must also restrain ourselves from saying that within this liberal democratic framework we can trust the political institutions to formalize a, a, a process of socialization so we can, if we politicize an issue enough, we can trust the state institutions, the political institutions to change people's mindsets. And if we become that society, then we're no better than uh, a dictatorship or a class of, you know, social engineering scientists. Oh, yeah, no, I see what you mean. Yeah, we have yeah. to we have to allow we have to allow people to make the wrong decision, to make bad decisions or to hold unhealthy viewpoints, because if we don't allow that. We're only going to end up trying to create a society that we think is preferable for other people. And we're only allowed to do that for ourselves. Yeah. Well, I so listen to us getting all preachy. Thanks for all the time <laughs> for giving us the opportunity to tell people. And how to I live. think. No, but it, it is, it is a, it is a serious risk, um, of, of socialization when we start thinking about how to treat people who don't hold, hold the same opinions mm. as us. When we start saying this is how we should mm. fix it. And it's not that we should fix them we should just try and fix the situation in which we deal with people who have yeah. different views and that's I, it you know what i i completely agree with you and i this is probably going to come off as seriously naive um but i do feel that when you get people together and they have a discussion the correct you know i don't want to say right or correct but you know the the the, the factual the truthful position is eventually arrived at so you know, you could get a whole bunch of homophobes into into a room and they would go into that room absolutely hating gay people. I do feel, though, if you like if you put them into a town with, you know, 50 percent homophobes, 50 percent gay people and like said, right, interact, go and took the weapons away. No weapons for you guys. And said eventually, the, you know, through the act of interaction, the homophobes would eventually be like, OK, these are just people. Uh they're not so bad. You know, I can have a joke with them. I can have a beer with them. You know, we've got much more in common than we don't. And the homosexuals who 
would have been scared of the homophobes would have the same. You don't need to socially engineer the stuff. If you make the space for discussion, then the you know the then society kind of progresses. But I think that's what we've been talking about. Oh, you big piece! But I, well, that's, I think that liberals have been have been shutting down the discussion, which is which makes me sad. Uh, it makes me very sad. And it's and it's that kind of a pull factor that I think has hurt Hillary Clinton on, on top of many of her other less than polite political traits. Um, but it's not just that uh, Trump is a completely charismatic um, demagogue who, who espouses populist values that's helped him win. It's also the fact that there you know there's a large part, portion of the American American population that just doesn't think. Hillary Clinton is a suitable alternative, and like you say, they feel they were left with no other choice. So I don't, I don't think there'd be many people, too many people, patting themselves on the back for voting for um, a complete mm. asshole. Uh, but uh, like- but let's not down, let's not downplay the the fact that there was a very poor alternative. Well, that, see, uh, I don't know. I'd like to have that there. discussion because I have heard that a lot, and I mean, I, like I'm looking at the stats now, and so I'm seeing, like for instance. The male-female divide uh, for the voters. Uh, so Hillary got 54% of the female votes, 41% of the male votes. Trump got 42% of the female votes and 53% of the male votes. So there is... Like, how did he get How did he get 42% of well, the female votes? Well, that's the thing. Vote? I mean, he got it. But I, I'm, I think... See, I've been trying to explain that to myself. And I think I've come up with a couple of reasons. Firstly... I think that amongst Trump's supporters, and remember that when we're talking about Trump's supporters, we are only talking about 26% of the population of America because the voter turnout was abysmal. You know, it was it was just over 50%. Yeah. So only a quarter of the population actually ended up voting for Trump. So, okay, so, but amongst that group, um, values might be more important to them than than, than gender. So the women who voted for Trump are probably people who are, you know, they're rural, they live in small towns, which probably means they hold traditional Christian values or traditional American values, which does not place as much emphasis on the, you know, the free women that the city dwellers do. Yeah. And that has an impact. Yeah. The other thing is, I think it's, it's almost sexist to expect a woman to vote for Hillary just because she's a woman. Like, that's sexist in yeah. and of itself. Like, don't tell me who to vote for because of my fucking gender. Um, so, yeah. but I think, I also do think though, that there is a certain amount of sexism involved because Hillary is a career politician. She absolutely is. But I do not feel that she has any more skeletons in her closet than any other politician of her experience or rank. And I think that if you replaced Hillary if you just imagine Hillary Clinton as a man, that she would get a lot less shit. So, like, for instance, the emails thing was just the biggest red herring on the fucking planet. That was just nonsense. Benghazi was a, a fuck-up, but it wasn't necessarily Hillary's fuck-up. It was the administration's fuck-up. Um, you know, I think if you replaced Hillary as in with a man, the, the same critiques that she's drawing now would not be directed at the, at her male equivalent. Uh, but I don't know. If- yes, but then, but then you can make the argument that she didn't lose because she's a woman. She lost because she's guilty of some pretty weak politicking. Well, I don't know. Do you think so? Do you think it's possible in American politics at the moment for a woman to actually get that? I don't know if it's possible, but I'm just saying you can you can make that argument. Yeah, but I don't know if it's I, like I mean because this is all conjecture. I don't know if that's a strong argument. I think look, if Hillary in the alternate universe where Hillary's a man. Um, I still think Trump wins, you know, given in in hindsight, given the because yeah. I I'm not yeah. saying that this was the biggest issue, and he probably wins by even more. Uh, yeah, maybe because see, I don't know, like I don't know if Hillary was a black guy. See, now we're just going into counterfactuals. <laughs> yeah, look, I do think that there was a percentage of sexism involved in just that. You know that there is still there is still sexism at the end of the day. People, there are still people yeah. who do not want to see their president as a woman, 
And I think that exists. Yeah. I, you know, I don't think that we need to have an argument about it. And I think that, ha- that had an effect on the election. The only, the only question is to what degree. Yeah, I mean, but how do you tell that? I mean, you know, there's still the, the glass ceiling definitely still exists. You know, there's still way more male CEOs than there are female CEOs. I mean, I, I think I read a stat the other day that there are more male CEOs in America named Peter uh, than there are f- female CEOs in total. Like that's indicative of a problem, uh, you know. To what extent is you need to move? You need to move. You're know, living in the wrong country. I'll make you CEO of Lands of Leviathan. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, thanks. We're so much money. <laughs> um, but I do think it's difficult to say to what extent. I, I agree with you. I mean, you'd have to conduct a, a very large study, and also it would be self-reporting, so it would be difficult. Yeah, but but either way, I I still think that in and of herself, as a as the Democratic presidential candidate, she did not she presented a great many pull factors against which the the majority of the American voting population decided no, that's not a good alternative for me, and if I'm going to have someone as a president, rather than but like what factors, the the trust factor, I think was the biggest one. Um, yes, there is sexism. Um, we, we, we're going to struggle to evaluate to what extent that would have helped win her the campaign if she were a man. But, um, but, the, but her, her inbedding in the political system for over 20 years, the, the corruption that's built up over that time, the fact that it, it sort of distilled itself in the case of the email mm. leak, um, and the untrustworthiness of being in a position that perhaps she couldn't handle when the Benghazi. Um, well, okay. So I mean, I, I don't think that's got anything occurred. to do with him. People might think this it, as as a person, like herself. It, it, no, no. But how many people on voting day who were undecided thought, you know what? Actually, all that stuff adds up to her being in the wrong place at the wrong time. I just don't sure. trust her. No, I I agree with you, but I, do, I I still don't think that's got anything to do with like Hillary Clinton will be a bad president. It's just like. At this point in time, you are a any politician who is, you know, a, a long-term politician who's been embedded in the system, made the normal amount of fuck-ups that any politician would have. And, you know... And right now, I'm tired of yeah. that system. I had that system in the 90s. You know, unless you were a hardcore Democrat from the 90s, you're still proud of carrying that name. I'm not even even the swing voter on the Democratic Party is going to perhaps think that that's not the best, um, you know, the best name to be carrying around right now. That's not going to instill me with the positive hope for change that I think the but country needs. But then let me needs. ask you a question: If Trump hadn't got the nomination, and let's say Bush or you know any of the other Republican nominees had had got the nomination, do, do you still do you think Hillary would have won in that case? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, yes, I definitely think so. Can you remember when she won the candidacy two years ago or when she lost um, to Obama? And everyone was saying if she had won against Obama, she would have beaten Mitt Romney. Um, I think by then we knew, or I certainly did, I assumed that the next president of the United States will be female. It was only when this outside dark horse candidate upset the, the, you know, the market and, um, and spoiled the race for her. So as you know, I'm trying to make a case here for both for both sides that she presented many pull factors against which the hesitant or swing voting um, sort of middle class um, white uneducated voters would have resisted. In if if Trump didn't wasn't uh, on the other side, they you know they perhaps wouldn't have um, supported. He he was such a strong firebrand, and this is the next point I want to get to is all the push factors that he offered um, as a as a populist. Um, attempted demagogue, he could very well have proven, you know, to to be the 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 stronger factor as a push factor. So it wasn't just that Hillary for them was a was the typical um, untrustworthy insider political candidate, but more that here comes someone that perhaps could actually offer the type of change we really wanted to see from Obama in two thousand and eight, mm. which on some like you said earlier, um, to paint this against the historical economic trend in the United States, I think is a fair context to apply it to because in 2008, you know, the, the that was the entire debate. That was all that the, the the presidential election was about, was how to fix what Bush had done. 
Um, and in many, but in, in both the international, in both the foreign policy, the the military foreign, foreign policy slash military uh, um, moves, and the economic maneuvers, Obama was not nearly as provocative or as proactive as he promised he would be. So while he did manage to pull back, and while he did manage to pull the economy up. It was in smaller, minuscule, less defined ways that might be more acutely recognized by your trained political scientist. But the average American could understandably feel a bit let down if they had voted for Obama and the Yes, We Can campaign. And against that, it only seemed inevitable that, according to the historical trend, that the Republican Party would offer some candidate in 2016 that would be able to be a bit more wholehearted, uh, holistically firebrand, and offer that holistic change that was promised to them in 2008. Uh, and not to them, the Republican Party, but to the American people. So so to, so to come up with the, with the Donald Trump candidate, I understand, hurt the party, hurt the party's image, but, um, but in the historical context, I, uh, I thought it made a bit of sense. Um, an unfortunate bit of sense. So that's the that's the historical thing, and it's just interesting to see now how the type of political change Trump is supposed to bring is exactly what Obama was supposed to be fighting against. Well, you know, in two thousand nine, when everyone was accusing him of, he was actually gotten to bed with the SEC and didn't make the necessary changes to the Federal Reserve and the personnel working there that he promised he would make, and seemed very much to be. Uh, to have sold out to big business. And I think that's a fair... Yeah, but also, I mean, Obama was stonewalled time after time when he was trying to break up the big banks. And he was, you know... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's a, and there's also a couple of things that Obama, you know... So what? Then you just no, give no, him... You know, like, no, I agree with you. I'm just saying... Like, his whole campaign was about overhauling yeah. the entire system. And I, and, I had, and I have to admit, you know, my lack of financial understanding... He didn't but, manage to ...and the it. financial system in the U.S., still, I still can see that there has been yeah. zero overhaul. And there, I mean, there's other huge promises that Obama did, has not delivered on. You know, he promised to get out of Afghanistan. America is still there. Uh, he promised to get out of Iraq. America yeah. is still there. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and if anything, you know they they're conducting you know they found other means of conducting yeah, more military activity there with with fewer boots. Um, yeah, so you don't have boots on the ground, but you've got wings yeah, exactly. in the air. It's um, so it's been quite a it's been quite a hypocritical presidential seat. But we not this isn't what the episode's supposed to be about. It's more like it's just interesting to see how Trump came to power when the and the, the for me the generic American voter I assumed would have been more upset with the lack of delivery of Obama, and maybe would have gone for a more hardcore Democrat uh, mm. candidate, and yet has swung to the other end, is going more for a free, protectionist market economy, uh, sort of, you know, uh, a la 1970s American mm. economy, and uh, and is still trying to, you know, head even further backwards in their military campaign by building walls and still trying to be the bully of the international yeah. system. So it seems like a very much the, 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 the seesaw vote historically going from 2008 mm. to now. But historically, you know, that's what the country's done. You know, since 1998, since 1992, having gone with Clinton and Bush and Obama, it, it kind of makes sense. So I shouldn't be so surprised to be as surprised. I was as just, I, well, I just didn't expect Trump himself to win because Trump cannot achieve what he said he wants to achieve. And I think that this is, you know, there, there is something else that we tend to be incredibly, uh, it seems to me sometimes like Americans are a bit naive about their president. You know, in every other country, whether you have a presidential system or a parliamentary system, you know that your, your, your prime minister or your president is subject to the whims of the political process out of which they came. So, you know that there are certain. I mean, we, as people who study political science, I mean, I think some of, one of the first things we we studied in political science was the issue of democratic promises. That the democratic process has come to a point where, in order to win, candidates have to make promises that they, in fact, could never keep ever in any time at all. Like it's ridiculous, um, and that that happens a lot. It's but it, it does happen a lot. But I wouldn't say they could never keep it. I say. That the promises they have to make could only be kept in a non-democratic yeah, exactly. system. Exactly, that's a, that, that's a really good way to put it. And yeah. that's 
that's the inherent hypocrisy to which our large democracies yeah. have grown. And that's the sad part. It's within that growth system. So where democracy has become too big for its own good, where its representatives are too far removed from its own electorate, where the promises and the mandate that they have to give themselves in order to gain that lowest common denominator support, to attain that critical mass in order to over, uh, to outcompete the, the other democratic uh, candidates, you have to have one an undemocratic amount yeah, of exactly. power. And as soon as that power is awarded to that candidate and that person is placed at the helm of such a regime, they have to execute a, a, a demagogue. They have to become a tyrant. They have to become a demagogue. They have to execute, yes, a tyrant. They have to execute a ty- tyrannical amount of power in order to, to fulfill yeah. their mandate. And when they inevitably fail, people... Um, inevitably accuse the system of failing them, accuse the candidate of failing them, and forget that it was democracy that set them up for that inevitable failure. Instead of of overhauling the system, they overhaul the candidate. And never get, they only get a chance to to vote a new candidate. They never get a chance to overhaul the system. They never get a chance to vote for the system. Because I remember when Obama got elected the first time on, you know, he wanted to bring in the universal health care. He wanted to get troops out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, he wanted to restructure yeah. the financial systems um, and so on and yeah. so on. I remember the political pundit saying, how is he going to do this? You know, how how is it possible? Yeah. How does he think he's going to be able to do this? This is an election promise that cannot be kept. And, you know, Obamacare yeah. came in. I mean, he, I think he did a pretty good job, but not in any way close to what he wanted. He made a fuck ton of compromises. Yeah. And it was because, you know, yeah. he had a Republican Senate and a Republican Congress. And this is the nature of the political reality. So, uh, and, you well, know, how? yeah, but exactly what you said, you've made the point. You know, we, we get upset with our, with, with our candidates when they can't do what we want them to do. But the democratic system cannot allow them to do what they want because they would have to have too much power in order for that to happen. Well, I want to move on to that to end off the episode is the type of system that is that is not just allowed but encouraged leaders like Donald Trump to become popular. It's you know our democratic systems are becoming demagog- demagog- demagogic mm-hmm. systems. Um, but before we get there, just, now that you mentioned what Obama ha- came up against, how influential is it going to be now that knowing that? Trump has both the House and the Senate in majority uh, Republican well, you see, Okay, so that's because that's what I how that's scary what I wanted is that? to get into as well is what what we see coming in the future, and <laughs> I'm so scared of making predictions now about this fucking shit show. But well, make it simple. Say, do you think he's going to sell out, become a soft-handed president? Who's going to waver to the political whims of the capital and just try Trump... and stay in power for the next presidential win to ensure an eight year term? Or do you think he's going to become a hardcore? Tyrant? I think that Trump does not have the Senate and the House of Representatives. The Republicans have the Senate and the House of Representatives. And the Speaker of the House is Paul Ryan, who is a also a very accomplished politician and I think a very shrewd politician. Yeah. You could see immediately after yeah. Trump won, he cozied up straight away. He was in there. Yeah. I think that if anything, given Trump's character, he will be very happy to be a face of, you know, he'd be very happy to, to have the, uh, you know, the yeah. kind of public attention that the presidency gives. And I, yeah. I'm not saying that this is going to happen, but I would not be surprised if Trump is allowed to remain as that, you know, that public face while the Congress and the Senate run stuff in the background. And because there are, certain, there are policies that Trump wants to enact that cannot be done. The building of the wall across the Mexican border is insane. Like, it's just, it's not financially possible. And his statement that the the Mexican government will pay for it is ridiculous. Like it's 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 just not feasible without a huge amount of power. And I can't imagine, you know, given that the Republicans understand how the democracy, how the economy works, cutting off that that supply of cheap labor would be disaster. And also pulling out of things like NAFTA, 
that would destabilize the North American economy. Yeah. That's just insane. Pulling out yeah. of the Trans-Pacific yeah. Partnership, he might have more ability to do it yeah. because it's relatively new. But I I can't see it doing much. What what I'm concerned with is not so much. Well, I, I firstly I don't think that he's going to help the Middle America that elected him. So I think that they're going to be super pissed eventually, and they might kick him out of office um, after four years. But what I'm scared of is he's going, what I'm scared is that he's going to undo all the good international work that Obama has done over the last year or so. Um, you know, Obama has made overtures to Cuba, started lifting sanctions there. Um, you know, he's done the same with Iran. Tensions between Iran and the West are starting to smooth out a lot more. Um, you know, the relationship with Russia is pretty bad, but in my, in my opinion on international relations, it's pretty much Russia's fault for fucking annexing a part of a country. Um, you know, and if, if Trump continues on this, on this diatribe of that states need to protect themselves, then you're going to see a, a, an increase in Japanese militarization, which can only make things worse in that area. I mean, well, how the fuck is China going to respond to a militarized Japan, which they haven't seen since the 1940s? You know, and the last time Japan had an army, you know, China got invaded. So I'm, I'm, I'm more worried about the yeah. international effect of the Trump presidency than the, than the national ones. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the academic. I said this to, to a colleague yesterday. The academic in me is far more interested in the international mm-hmm. repercussions of Donald Trump as a president and as a foreign policy. Well, also because we're foreign as a state. Because it's going to be one giant cataclysmic yeah. circus. With that oaken power. Um, what I'm going to have a lot of fun watching is how he handles North Korea. I think it's going to be a joke. It's going to be an infinite factory for memes. And uh, if anything is going to improve with Trump in power, it's the United States relationships with Putin. I think Putin's going to love Donald Trump. Yep. And they're going to get along like a house mm-hmm. on fire. Um, what will also be interesting is to see how the new isolated UK handles their relationships with, their, with the, <laughs> the big yeah. brother. Um, but it's but NATO is going to have a lot more is going to be a lot more active I think or it'll be, try to be a lot more active against what I don't know because I don't think they're going to be picking many fights with Russia and and uh, without you know the the obvious amount of posturing just to keep you know people um, uh, believing in in the in the NATO forces but the relationships with the Middle East are going to crash abysmally. Um, whatever inactivity Obama supported in the Middle East, I think is going to subside in all the wrong mm. areas and increase in all the mm. wrong areas. Um, so we'll see more politically, not politically, more military, uh, more military violence in the wrong areas and, and involvement in the part of the United States and more inactivity in the places that actually need mm. protection. Um, it'll be interesting to also to see how he handles Africa. Obviously, that's my mm. personal interest. And uh, I think it's just going to be the same as Latin America and Central America. It's probably just going to be a relationship of exploitation. Yeah. Uh, but they'll they'll continue as with Obama on sort of a, a holistic regional perspective where you know they, they treat one country in Africa the same way they treat all the countries mm. in Africa. Um, but the, the real area of interest is how the rest of the world reacts to this to a very immature policy making, mm. and specifically how the rise of power in the East reacts and how it treats um, a very, can we say, a trending towards history type of United mm. States, a more isolationist United States. Yeah, yeah. Where if Japan starts to distance itself and if South Korea starts to distance itself from a very militarily active United States, how will China react to that? How will China try and... Uh, Will it, you know, will it in, can continue encouraging good relations with historically difficult, um, I don't want to say opponents, but uh, c- counterparts in the in the in South Korea mm-hmm. and Japan? Um, if if China ever feels incentivized to behave more conflictually and more militarily in the South China Sea, then you know that's going to do a great deal of mm-hmm. harm to the Western Pacific. Um, and that is all going to be spurred by this, you know, white haired orange mm. carrot. It's it's going to be, yeah, it's going to be. I don't want to say a lot of fun to watch, but the the academic in me is far more interested in that. However, I don't want to seem inhumane. I think 
um, the people in the United States is what we should really be caring about, and especially the immigrants and the and minority groups who could potentially be affected mm. by some seriously discrimination policies that could come out of the. the and that's uh, and that's like also yeah. you know a final thing that I would also like to say is that you know I read a I read an article um, by a. I was just a think piece uh, by a guy in America where he, uh, it was entitled uh, uh, to my white friends, please stop telling me to relax. And, you know, like for us, you know, especially I'm, I'm in Australia, you're in South Africa. Like this is not going to have huge impacts on our lives. Um, you know, no. we are also, we're not, you know, we're middle class. It's, it's fine for the, for the white middle class people in America who are living in the cities, it's fine. Everything's fine. Like this is not going to have a huge effect on your life. Um, for the, for the whites people living in the rural areas, like, you know, maybe your life will get better. Uh, you know, it sounds like it, it sounds like it can't get any worse, but, uh, but for, for the minorities (laughs) in America, you know, they're really scared at the moment and with good reason. You know, I've been, I've been reading terrible stories of, kids coming to school and not knowing if their parents are going to get deported or not and, you know, crying in classrooms and and shit like that. And that's horrible. That's, you know, that's, that's terrible stuff. So, you know, and, and I I think for me and you, you know, it's so it's, it's cool for us to be able, I mean, that's why we do this podcast because we like to talk about this stuff and, and it can come off as a bit uh, insincere and us being like, uh, you know, this is going to be interesting to look at over the next two years. And it is, it is going to be interesting, but that's, you know, that's not, but scary and, un- and insecure for yeah, many people. Yeah, and I mean, you know, political scientists wouldn't have a job if everything was stable. So we we live on insecurity. <laughs> um, but I, you know, and I, that's the only thing I can say is that I, the, there is also a possibility for increased responsibility in the world. Um, if America goes into isolation, more isolation, which again it hasn't done since the end of the Second World War. You know, the Second World War was the last time yeah. America came out of isolation, and it hasn't gone back in since then. Now, if it does go back in, that means we start to enter into a multipolar world of power, which gives a possibility for another another superpower to arise. You know, it could be Japan, China. Yeah, I wouldn't say India. Uh, Germany. No. Germany could definitely take up the reins. Um, you know, not with the election. With their election, not with the, yeah, not with the with the new chancellor. Coming. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, what I'm saying is that there, there is there is if America goes into isolation, there is going to be a reshuffling of global power, which unfortunately, guys, yes. if you look at the statistics of when you have a multipolar world and a reshuffling of global power, it's, too it's fucking bad. But let's hope that yes. this is the one time in human history when somebody just steps up to the plate and is like, "I will lead you." Uh, so uh, it hasn't happened ever. Yeah, but, uh, let's hope it does. <laughs> um, like I don't know. I, uh, it would be nice to end this on now, a now is a good note, but uh, now is a good time for Clark Kent to come out of hiding. Yeah, I mean, I would like the you know. I think it would be cool if the if the uh, Jedi Council, like you know, turns out that Star Wars is happening in our universe right now, and the Jedi just like make contact <laughs> with the world and be like, okay, guys. You obviously can't run your own shit, so you're part of the Galactic Republic now. <laughs> um, and Peter and Brock, you guys have the Force. Uh, we're going to take you away to China, <laughs> and then we'll just be like, "Peace." We are honorary <laughs> members of the Council. <laughs> uh, I don't care about the Force. Just give me yeah. a lightsaber. Just peace. I'm a Jedi Knight now, bitches. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll just sell my lightsaber. And <laughs> But uh, a shout out. To, but how about some of the good memes I've, we've seen this week? I remember seeing, we were speaking about walls earlier, and someone just put a screenshot of the the wildlings gathering outside the north of the of the of the wall, and uh, <laughs> the caption read, "This was a picture taken of Canada." Oh yeah, yeah, I saw that one, and oh. I've seen the, the ones of Canada, uh, uh, Canada and Mexico working together to build a wall around America and like isolating them from the world. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, what is the other one was um, someone after the Brexit vote uh, you can Britain says see we have we can achieve a world a world breaking level world record breaking level of immaturity yeah. and then America responds by saying hang on hold <laughs> <my> <laughs> see what I can do 
Um, I don't know. Yeah. Like, okay, so I'm. I mean, that's all I've got to say at this point. We're we're actually over time. Well, I've got one last question yeah, for yeah, you. Yeah. Given that we've established how our democracies are encouraging these new types of demagogues to exploit the or to yeah exploit the amount of the fear mongering capacity and the amount of dissatisfaction that the average people, the average electorate person, member of the electorate, is experiencing in the in modern democracies. Would we can we can classify it's safe to classify people like Donald Trump as demagogues and, and maybe even as populists, even though he himself is not a member of the working class. But what type of a tyrant or who in the list of popular culture do you think is best represents Donald Trump? Fuck, I don't know. <laughs> um, like that's what I said thinking, right in the beginning when I said Emperor Palpatine. But Emperor Palpatine is like smart and conniving. I don't like see Donald Trump as being smart and conniving. Yeah. Um, you know what? Maybe he's Chancellor Valoran because uh, you know Palpatine got him in there in the first, <laughs> the first. So maybe there is a Palpatine behind Trump. I don't know. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It's. I mean, he's. I wouldn't be surprised if there is, but I'm thinking maybe more of the, who, what is it, the mayor who ran Woodbury? Oh, yeah, the psychopath. Uh, fuck, what's what his is his title? Um, the governor. Governor. <laughs> that's right. No, the governor. Um, yeah, that's, that's what I mean. I if thought, I can't I thought have about him, but also, yeah, but he was also, I think, a bit smarter than Trump. And I think he... Um, what he shares is is his illegitimate power yeah. campaigning, but uh, he seemed a bit more astute than yeah. what Trump does. Who who else can I think of? What other type of demagogue would? Uh... Is there someone in Battlestar Galactica? Let me see. Nobody who's like stupid. I mean, there's President Roslin, who's like very. Hil- I mean, you could see how much her character was based on Hillary Clinton. Like she's a. Oh, what about what about President Snow from The Hunger Games? I mean, even he, he's a smart, shrewd politician. He's just a dick. <laughs> like the, the, I think popular culture has trouble dealing with. Okay, well here's some. No, not necessarily. Joffrey's not that smart. Joffrey's probably the closest to Donald Trump. Uh, but I mean, he would Joffrey. But you know, Joffrey is was, you know in, in, he inherited yeah. power. He didn't win yeah. it. But I could imagine a Trump presidency being he's, like Joffrey. He's more of a tyrant than a demagogue. Yeah. Now, well, that's the thing is that like Trump defies. Everything you know what you know you know what the closest thing is is Biff Tannen in fucking Back to the Future uh, when when because uh, he is Trump <laughs> he's fucking Trump that's what that's, it's like a prediction of what was going to happen I don't know what those guys were writing but that's that's what it is I mean he he go back and watch that movie guys that's fucking Donald Trump he even looks like Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, he is that type of arrogant bully who, who probably is sitting in the White House thinking, yeah, I was always going to win that race. I was always going to be president yeah, exactly. of the United States. But if he had any semblance of IQ, if he had any intellectual capacity, he'd probably be laughing, saying, I can't believe I actually yeah. and won. And also, Biff Tannen was a rapist, so also pretty close. Um. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, let's just say he forced himself on women. Um, but yeah, that's, I think, the closest thing we can get in popular culture. I mean, the Simpsons also predicted this shit, like, straight up. They predicted... <laughs> the Simpsons predicted The many Simpsons things. predicted everything. It's just like the book of prophecy <laughs> in the Simpsons. <laughs> um, and I wish we could end this on a more positive note, but we don't know enough yet. So maybe we'll do a follow-up to this uh, in the next couple of months. Anything else to say, Brock? Thanks for listening, guys. We hope you enjoyed that. If you did not access this via our website, landsofleviathan.com, then please visit the site to find other materials such as all of our other ACOS tracks and articles. And if you'd like any updates on the website, please don't be shy to subscribe to our RSS feed that is also there. We also look forward to hearing your comments and feedback. Send us an email at landsofleviathan at gmail.com. It's L-A-N-D-S-O-F. L-E-V-I-A-T-H-A-N. And you can also find us on Facebook as well as Twitter um, under the Lands of Leviathan podcast. And if you didn't listen to that directly, then you can find it on Acast or any Acast supporting app such as iTunes. Hope you enjoyed it, guys. Thanks so much.